Good evening and welcome to our evening service. This is a, a test good evening. Deborah's trying to turn the machine on the way it should be. So uh, if I repeat in a few minutes, good evening and welcome to our evening service, you'll know why I'm doing that. Good to have you here with us this evening. And those who are joining us on Zoom as well, we welcome you. Okay, the scripture reading tonight will be Psalm 51. Again, a familiar passage. It's it's more of a poetic version of what David confessed in our in the passage that we looked at this morning, Second Samuel twelve. Let's prepare our hearts now for God's Word. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me truly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part that thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise, for thou desirest not sacrifice. Else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto that Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come once more before you. And again, it is with confidence. It is with the sureness that we have in Christ. The sureness that we have because you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you, God. Thank you. Lord, prepare our hearts for the message tonight. May your spirit be with us. Your word says when we're two and three are gathered, you are among us, and surely you are with the saints as they gather together. And surely you have promised to send your Holy Spirit in our midst. That is in part why Christ had to leave, that he would send another helper to us. And, and so we thank you for the Holy Spirit with us now. We pray that he would work out what he has come to do in our midst, Lord, regenerating our hearts, softening our hearts, convicting us of sin, and turning our hearts to God, turning our hearts away from our sin, changing the affections and desires of our hearts away from sins and the things of this world that we would desire you all the more. Help us to meditate upon you. Help us to think and be amazed at how wonderful you are, Lord. Lord, help us to offer right sacrifices before you. And we know that Christ, in Christ, the demands of the Old Testament were fulfilled. But you still delight in, as what our brother talked about this morning from Hebrews 13, you delight in the praise, the sacrifices of our lips, God. And the service unto others, Lord. Help us to love one another. Help us to speak the love and speak love to one another. Speak the truth in love, Lord. Lord, give us boldness in all of these things. Lord, I pray for this evening, this service, again, that you would be in our midst, working in our hearts. We pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Again, brother, welcome. Glad you're here. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Psalm 51. And again, I want to make it extremely plain that I'm not doing this psalm Again, because I think I can do it better than Kirk, <laughs> or that he didn't do a good enough job, but uh, sometimes the Lord moves in mysterious ways, and maybe he wants us to look at a passage from a different light, and so 
We're going to spend a little bit more time in that tonight, even though we looked, I, you guys looked at it a couple weeks ago. Let's pray. Father God, your word says that the, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be working in our lives. And through this message this morning, purifying our hearts. And when where our consciences are seared, Lord, that they would be renewed. And where our faith is doubtful, Lord, that it would be strengthened. Lord, I pray. Amen. Verse 17, Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This expression of a broken and a contrite heart captures a certain kind of person. And it's one we should know intimately. For the scriptures are clear how much the Lord desires our hearts to be conformed to this posture when we too are in sin. In this morning's message, we looked at the story of David in his deepest moment of sin. And this psalm captures David's spirit, his thoughts, the anguish of his soul after Nathan rebuked him. For until that moment, the narrative gives no indication he had any regret or pity over what he had done. Here, though, we see the words of man, the words of a man pleasing to God. Oh, yes, David sinned, but upon realizing what he had done, he was crushed by it. And true godly sorrow, which leads to repentance came upon him. Psalm 34:18 says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 66 verse 2 but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is and this is the Lord speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What about the Beatitudes? Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The aim of my sermon tonight is on how do we have the same right posture before God that is pleasing to Him, even though we have sin in our lives. Sin that would normally bar us from his presence. For he is a holy God. How are we to be reconciled to this one? This comes, of course, only through Jesus' blood, his sacrifice and the spirit working in us, regenerating us. But when we are called by the gospel to repent and to believe, what does it look like for our hearts to respond in such a way? All that to say, tonight we are asking, 
Primarily, how do we recognize a broken and a contrite heart? Does it look the same for everyone? How does it manifest in terms of our thoughts, in terms of our actions? How is it informed by our theology? What about our anthropology, our, our understanding of man? Using Psalm 51 as a case study, we're going to try and unpack these things. And the first point I want to make is that a broken and a contrite heart, a broken and a contrite spirit understands that God is truly blameless in his judgment. That is to say, God is faultless in his judgment. Every judgment he makes is right. Every punishment is just. Well, every act of forgiveness is also still just. Now, where do we see this in our text tonight? God is the judge, okay. He is the one David appeals to. Not just because he is the one with steadfast love or loving kindness. He's also the one with the abundant mercy, but that's not why David comes to him specifically. Not that we're diminishing those here. But also because he is the only one who can truly blot out, as David says, my transgressions. He's the only one who can wash me thoroughly or thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He is the only one who can address your sins. Now, why is that? Again, it, it isn't exactly because he is the most merciful God. He is the most merciful one. But the answer instead is found in verse 4. When David claims against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. It makes you wonder what's going on, doesn't it? I mean, after this morning, you already know that clearly David did terrible, despicable, contemptuous things against Uriah and Bathsheba. No one can deny that. You can hum and ha about whether or not Bathsheba was complicit in any of it, but that's not the point of the text. David committed adultery and led her into it as well, taking a woman who was not his. And then he kills the husband, or has, or has him killed. Again, it's not different in the eyes of the Lord, and certainly doesn't make a difference for Uriah. And that's the point. Uriah was wronged. But still, David says, against thee, thee only have I sinned. In his brokenness and with his contrite heart, David displays in this psalm what theologians would refer to as a proper hamartiology. It's a, this, that is a right doctrine and a right understanding of sin. And, as I was referred earlier, a, a proper theology. What, that is the right understanding of God. It was on the basis of God's law alone that David was under judgment. If you go back to Second Samuel 12, as we looked at this morning, David is punished not for going against some unclear, nebulous moral code of the human race that baselessly claims that those who kill should be punished. 
forgive me, I'm going to get a little bit heady and hypothetical here, but we'll come back down in a second. But what I want you to realize is without the objective standard of God's moral law, humans do not have a basis to make any moral claim. You can ask them why something is considered wrong, and maybe they'll tell you it's because it hurts someone. You ask them why that's wrong. And they'll talk about, oh, it's, well, it's wrong. Or, or they'll say it's based on the shared values of our cultures throughout history, right? And, and then you ask them why the majority opinion in any given society at any given time should decide something which with such high stakes as right and wrong? Or on what grounds it bases these moral claims on? And, well, for those who are consistent, they say they have no grounds and admit everything really is just subjective. But this just leads to the pointlessness of it all. Or they admit they're just basing it on their feelings of what's right and wrong, at which point they become their own rulers of morality. But that just means that years later, someone could have the exact opposite moral framework and yet still be just as right morally in the eyes of the society, since morality is at the whim of everyone. Does that sound familiar? I quoted it this morning, and, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The constant refrain of the book of Judges. I think everyone would sober up and maybe be a bit disillusioned of that position if they actually read through the whole book of Judges. And realize what happens when everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. I mean, Judges 19. That's, if you know what I'm referring to, that's one of the hardest chapters to read in the whole, whole of Scripture. But, brothers and sisters, this is not the world that God created. I'm not saying that people don't have a sense of right or wrong. They do, by God's grace. They do tend to know when something is wrong or right, even though they can be so hardened in their sin so as to ignore their conscience on this thing or that thing. Or even they sear their consciences so badly that it stops paining them when they commit injustices. God does allow such depravity to happen. We see it all over today. But the point is, no utterly fallible, finite humans are not the arbiters, the, the rulers, the deciders of justice, reality, truth, or morality. There is an objective moral standard that humans are judged according to. And this is a grace of God. And that standard is revealed in his word. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9 says, When David's judgments are being pronounced, why did you despise what? 
Why did you despise the word? Or as the KJV says, the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. God has a moral standard that he has revealed in his word to all of us that we must follow. David, you and I all live quorum Deo, that is, in the presence of God. He sees all. He knows all. Psalm 103, I already quoted it this morning, you cannot hide from him, neither in the heavens nor in the depths below, and certainly not on the earth. We cannot hide from him, rather he is our creator, and he has determined what is right and what is wrong for us for our benefit. Therefore, every action we do is either done in obedience or out of rebellion against him. And this is the crux of verse 4. Against you, against thee, thee only, have I sinned. All wrongdoing is done primarily and first and foremost against God. Yes, others are harmed in it, for sure. But it is done primarily against God. And if every sin is against God, then forgiveness can only come from him. This is why David pleads to him, pleads to God for mercy. But it's important to note that his plea is not one of presumption. He is not diminishing his sin in any way. In fact, his language elevates his sin to a higher degree than most of us would consider of our own wrongdoings. He talks about his wrongdoing in this, in this way. He uses transgressions, iniquity, done what is evil in your sight, sin, blood guiltiness. Thus David can readily admit that God is just and blameless in his judgment, whether God forgives him or not. God remains righteous. Indeed, David surely knows the nature of his sin. This is why he is able to make the next claim in verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or as the ESV says, I was brought forth in iniquity. Now this text isn't saying anything salacious about the matter of David's conception. It's not saying he came from some forbidden union or sexual immorality or what have you. He's really just poetically saying that all of the days of his life all of the days of the human life, they are steeped in sin. He's, he's been in sin since his birth. For humanity itself is entirely polluted by it. No human escapes the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. Adam's race is born into sin. This is one of the key propositions of the doctrine of original sin. And I know it's not always an easy one to grasp or, or even to accept. Um... But Romans 5 expresses, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then again in verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, 
So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Sin and death came into this world through one man, but through him all were made sinners. If you want more proof of this, you can look at human history. Or you can look at Romans 3, where Paul lays out mankind's fallenness in full. All have fallen short. No, not one. But I hope you notice what I read from Romans 5.19, the second half there. For there was one man who was obedient in full. He alone was unaffected by Adam's sin, though he was not without temptation. Our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you know you're a sinner, there is your hope. The one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. If you don't know that you're a sinner, or that you've transgressed God's law, then to put it plainly, the devil's got you duped. It's you need to wake up, snap out of it. If you can picture a sleeping dog in a burning house. That dog is dreaming wonderful, comfortable, fun-loving dreams. And, and maybe in your sleep, you can just feel a warm sensation, right? And, but that dream's going to pop real quick. In sin did my mother conceive me. And since that is the case, the broken and the contrite heart acknowledges with full conviction that God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgments. I should add, though, before wrapping up this point, that oftentimes if you're engaging in evangelism with atheists or non-Christians, or even if you're teaching new Christians and sometimes old it's not uncommon to hear some complaint about the injustice of God's punishment. It's not always easy to accept that God is blameless in his judgments. If you talk to most people, it's, it's normally too, not too hard to convince them that they are sinners. Though you'll get pushback on that too, but but once many accept that, they tend to move to the next hesitation, which is that they don't see God's eternal punishment of hell as a fitting or suitable punishment for their sins. They think it's wildly disproportionate. And I mean, can we actually blame them? The church itself can hardly accept it. We need the Spirit to do such a work in the church and throughout the world such that we would stop having such a high view of ourselves and restore the notion that the God we revere and praise is so far above in worthiness, holiness, awesomeness, 
might, sorry, power and might, that we are nothing more than a speck before him. And yet we dare to rebel against him. This is why the gospel, this is why the incarnation of Christ is so precious, that God, that the Lord walked in our midst, lived with us, was tempted, and suffered at our hands. For the world, hell is like a man being sent to the gallows for stealing some five-cent bubblegum. And when it's phrased that way, one tends to agree, but we really have to be careful and keep our eyes and our ears open and our minds sharp. Because that analogy simply does not fit the biblical picture. The biblical picture, rather, is that God, our Father, gives us the most beautiful, precious, wonderful, entirely fulfilling life in Him. Life eternal, dwelling with our God and He with us in perfect love and harmony. Think about that garden. God with His people. That's still His desire. That's still what is promised to us, what awaits us. Yet we intentionally reject him and his law for a life of sin and misery. He gives us a garden of Eden and one tree of no, and we, we beeline for that tree every time. Don't think you would have done different if you had been in the shoes of Adam or Eve. People who make such objections essentially belittle their sin to some measly things. They believe they're not really harming anyone or that what God considers to be sinful is preposterous. But that just shows how far we are away from God in our hearts and in our culture. They think they're generally good people. It's not uncommon that you, get, you come across people and they, they believe that the human heart is good at its core. But it's not the biblical picture. Humans, everything not done out of faith is sin. Again, I say every action not done for God is really done in disobedience against God. We are called to love the Lord our, our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. To put it differently, the biblical picture of finite man's rebellion against our holy almighty God is like a dog returning to its vomit. Even though there's a plate of barbecue ribs on the side there. or a washed pig wallowing in the mud that it was just cleansed from. Or it's like God's complaint against Israel in Jeremiah 2.13, which can surely be applied to us all, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's number one. And number two, 
after forsaking the fountain of living waters, we humans in our foolishness, in our blindness, hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We exchanged the fountain of living water, life, eternal life, for cisterns that cannot even hold a drop. Other theologians have replied instead that they're really asking the wrong question. They shouldn't be asking how anyone could be sent to hell, but rather how could anyone be saved? Again, the problem is too small of a view of God and our sins and too high or arrogant a view of ourselves and our own righteousness. Let's move to the next point to see what can actually be done about our sin. A broken and a contrite spirit understands that since mankind is fallen and we ourselves participate in its fallenness, you need forgiveness. But not just forgiveness, you need a clean heart. You need forgiveness, but our transgressions being blotted out is only one part of the solution to the problem of man. We also need to be washed thoroughly from my iniquity, cleansed from our sin. What am I saying here? Aren't those the same things? Sin causes us to do terrible things, and those things do deserve punishment and condemnation, but the forgiveness of such sins is not enough. For sure, the imagery of being purged with hyssop and washed whiter than snow evokes the purity that comes from the forgiveness of our sins. And no, I am not in any way diminishing the blood of Christ here or what that represents. We needed his death. We needed him to bear the penalty of sin for us. But forgiveness does not address the cause of our sin in the first place, does it? We can be forgiven sin, but without a renewed heart, we'll just sin again and again and again. Why did we sin? Because our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand them? But if our hearts, the very center of our beings, are corrupted and drenched in the slick, oil of sin, if that is what is pumping through our very veins, then our very actions, our very thoughts, are likewise corrupted. Matthew 15, 18 to 20, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, Theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. A baby can be forgiven for any of the crime it commits as it acts in pure self-interest. But until the child grows to understand that what it's doing is wrong and sees why good things and righteousness are appealing, then why should the child do anything else besides feeding his or her self-interest? 
It's not a perfect analogy, but what I'm trying to say, point to is a biblical need for human regeneration. We have to be born again. You need the Spirit of God working in you, giving you a new heart. You can't just be forgiven of sin. Sin needs to be removed, extracted from your soul and your body such that you are able to not sin at all. This is sanctification, the ongoing process of sanctification in our lives, the ongoing process of being more and more holy in our lives. Again, this is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pray for that, long for that, desire that. This is why David does not just cry out that his transgressions and iniquities might be blotted out, and that God would hide his face from his sins. Certainly, he needed God's abundant mercy for this. David needed the blood guiltiness that he bore upon himself removed. But more than that, he needed God's compassion and love to also do a work of recreation and renewal in David's heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you understand the irony of this? Who, out of all the scriptures, can say that he was a man after God's own heart? In the explicit sense, David alone. He, we saw that this morning. He alone was chosen by God as a man after his own heart. But when he sinned in the way that he did, he realized his heart was not right with God. The mantra of today is, follow your heart. David tried that for one day. And again, it quite literally led to the deaths of thousands with all of the strife that arose in his house as a result of his sin. No, David and you and I and all mankind, the world over, we need new hearts. This is why the new covenant promise in Ezekiel is so important. When God says, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Again, that's a purifying imagery. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And this is the important part. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. This is what we need. New hearts, a new spirit within us. God's own Holy Spirit upholding us, teaching us, rebuking us, guiding us in the way of life. Brothers and sisters, with broken hearts and contrite hearts, if you have not done so before, if you have not, if you have some ongoing sin that you are wrestling with, cry out to God. Not only that He would forgive you, though you will certainly need that, but my prayer is also that you would long for and desire and know that you need God to create in you a clean heart and renew a right spirit within you. Only then does Second Corinthians five seventeen become a reality 
for you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And yes, I, I know that there is an element that this is ultimately fulfilled in the once Jesus comes, once he returns. But we are a new creation now in Christ. If you have died with him, you have been raised with him. You are dead to sin, which means you do not have to be enslaved to it. And again, only then. Can you do as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the newness of life that we have in Christ Jesus. If you have died with him, you have also been raised with him into this newness of life. That is what our baptisms are meant to represent. Okay, but what does a new heart look like? How do you know you have one? Well, before I move to my final point, I shall, shall simply say that it includes a heart that bears the fruit of godly repentance. A heart struck by your own sinfulness rather than one that is hardened by it. A heart that weeps over your own sin against your holy God, rather than a heart that is pained only by the human consequences and inconveniences that it experiences from that sin. That is, you care that you have sinned against God. Against thee, against thee only have I sinned. Whereas human sorrow feels guilt and shame, which aren't always bad things. These are meant to lead us to repentance. Whereas human sorrow feels guilt and shame, but only such which leads them to misery rather than repentance. You hate that you cannot control your own body. You're frustrated that you couldn't contain your own tongue. But again, it's a self-centered sorrow that doesn't place such sin in the context of how you as a human have acted rebelliously, disobediently, and without consideration to God Almighty, your Creator in Heaven. Now, and we're getting into my third point here, lest any of you think I'm only advocating for some weak kind of Christianity for men and woman that is overcome by emotionalism. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm, I understand that all of our personalities are different. That means we mourn over our sin in different ways. Yes, our hearts must weep for our sin. If you are in sin, James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. These are necessary things, but don't go crying crocodile tears, forcing them. Forcing yourself to cry or, or even beating yourself up if you don't think you can shed 
or you're, if you don't think you're shedding enough tears at your sins. We are unique as individuals. Just be sure that before God, who knows your heart, you are honest. Repent. Cast yourself upon Him. The one who acts according to His steadfast love and according to His abundant mercy. Trust in Him, His goodness, even as you accept His justice in His judgments. Then turn from your sin and never look back. The third point I want to make tonight is that a broken and contrite spirit worships God rightly. In fact, a broken and a contrite heart is one means of worshiping God. After all, verse 17 says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. 16 and 17 together, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. After understanding that God is just in all his words and blameless in his judgments, that we truly deserve condemnation for our sins and that we really need God himself to do a miraculous spiritual work in our life of purifying us, washing us clean, but also in regenerating us by giving us a new heart and a renewed spirit, then we can truly come before the throne of grace with broken and contrite hearts, knowing that it is God alone who can save us. This is pleasing to him. God hates pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When one sinner humbles himself in this way, heaven rejoices. A broken and contrite heart is better than the scent of a slain bull or an offering of incense. In fact, such sacrifices and offerings are not what he truly desires. In one sense, especially in the New Testament, Mark 12, for there is one God and there is none other but he and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Or as our brother Kirk taught us this morning, we offer the bull of praise with our lips and our good service. Hebrews thirteen fifteen to 16, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. When Israel was in the depths of its sin against God, the Lord sent Amos to deliver them this message. Chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Make sure when you're gathering together with the saints that you are doing it 
in a way that pleases God, to praise him, to thank him, to love God, to love others. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let, let justice roll down like the waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. All of the sacrifices, all of the acts that the Israelites were doing, supposedly for God, it was all done out of hypocrisy. It was all done, they were doing one thing with their lips, but with their actions they were abusing justice. They were acting wickedly. You see that in the New Testament. Do Jesus actually commends and recommends that the people follow what the Pharisees are saying. Because they're saying what is good and right, generally. They're laws, but it's not what they do. It's not what they're doing. Don't follow them when what they're doing. They're hypocrites. Let me say that again. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what the Lord desires from you. As you seek to know Him and worship Him, remember that. Like David, when you are washed from your sins, cleansed in His blood, when you hear once more joy and gladness, and the bones that were broken rejoice, worship God by, verse 13, Psalm 51, telling transgressors God's ways his righteousness and his justice, that they too might return to him. Verse 14, O oh, all you who are forgiven, praise him. Sing aloud of his righteousness. May he, verse 15, open your lips and fill them with praise. As Romans 12 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as the living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Brothers and sisters, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When you sin, even if it is such a sin as David commits, be humble. Be broken over your sin and your wickedness. Pray that God would reveal to you how vile your sin is. How evil it is to sin against the Holy God. How damaging and unloving it is against those around us as well. Be contrite, but do not despair. First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins. As David has done in the psalm, he, that is God, is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
This is our hope. Let me close in prayer. Father God, we we praise you and thank you for your justice. You are a God who is blameless in all of your ways. In all of your words and your judgments, O oh God, you are just in your mercy and in your forgiveness because of what Christ has done on that cross. And Lord, though we know that our sins deserve wrath, and we know that you would be just to send us into that fire. We thank you, God, that in Christ, we have even greater confidence that we are washed clean, that we are forgiven, that we are made new, and you dress dress us in robes of white, in righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ, and that we are justified in Him so that none of us may boast in our works, O God. Lord, we praise you for your loving kindness and your abundant mercy. Lord, may the praise of our lips, the sacrifices of our lips, be pleasing in your sight, O God. O holy God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.